1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? It's the biggest, it's the best, it's Bond, and beyond. of a Russian agent. Let them get ashore and then kill them. Time's running out, Stromberg. Yours too, Mr. Bond. Yours too. It's the biggest. It's the best. It's Bond. And beyond. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? 
I'm Paul Spataro, and once again we are covering James Bond. We have the next movie in the catalog, The Spy Who Loved Me. So, of course, back with us again are Dave Pascarella. Hey, Paul. Great to be here. Good to have you. Chris Tyler. Hey. What's happening, Chris? Oh, nothing much. Just undersea adventure. And because this is a nautical adventure... David suggested that we invite our nautical consultant, Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. For the purposes of this, we will call you Commander Bill Robinson. <laughs> Naval Commander Bill. Aye, aye. So we've, we've been working our way through the James Bond catalog, and I will start off by asking you, Bill, to, you know, what it... We were just discussing it before we started to actually record. What What is your kind of James Bond history? When did you start becoming a fan of sorts? I remember the the first Bond film that I remember seeing was Moonraker. And then from that point, I saw um, – usually it was like the ABC Sunday night movie uh, was where they were played a lot. And that was where I started to go back. It's, oh, wow, this James Bond guy is pretty uh, – who is a secret agent? This is pretty cool. But and I didn't get some of the jokes because I was still pretty young. But uh, <laughs> but but they grew on me. And then I remember seeing you know uh, yeah that was where it started Moonraker. So this one I probably saw on TV. Um, and I whenever I would watch them, even on TV as a uh, a pubescent young boy watching the um, watching the pre-credit sequences mm. all, always made me think I was getting away with something. <laughs> like, wow, this is on TV. Look, oh my god, there was a flash of it was a silhouette. Oh, oh boy. Oh, it's really kind of funny. It's was that, was it? I think. <laughs> what the, wait, go back. Wow, I gotta record this. Let me get the VCR. Oh wait, they haven't been invented yet. Oh, no. It's so it's so much for a tape, it's too expensive to, to, to just record these. So, yeah, and, and, was, and even was, if I can get the tape to record it, we have to put three movies on it because they're so expensive. So it'll be so yeah. pixelated, I won't see what's <laughs> on it so anyway. Pixelated. We've got to bump it up like that. The uh, you know you had the three speeds where you could put one movie on the tape, or you could put SP, three movies. SP, LP, yeah. and SLP. Yeah, yeah. super long yeah. play. Super long, yeah. Yeah, so. I used to I used to put super long play tape in the VCR when my parents went to bed and I went to bed and put Cinemax on and get up real early. So that's all I, I'll say about that. I had a I had a videotape of I'm I'm going off topic, but I'll be quick. I had a videotape of Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, and I was trying to record it in, uh, like I was trying to fit it on the tape, but for some reason I didn't have enough space. Like you could see the tape at the top of the VCR, and I'm like, it's going to run out. I'm not going to get the whole movie. So at one point I I changed the speed in the middle of the recording. And the point where I changed the speed is right where they go into the Mutara Nebula. Source so it, goose. Uh, it was perfect. It was right when they hit it <laughs> because I hit it and the whole screen goes and then it goes goes back to normal. So and, and I watched it so many times that when I watch the movie, that happens in my head when I watch the movie. <laughs> that they oh hit the nebula, God. the screen goes. So anyway, all right. I'll, I'll be quiet. So no. just by way of background, to, to put us back on topic, at least somewhat, uh, for the longest time, I've made no bones about it, that Diamonds, of, uh, excuse me, Goldfinger is my favorite Bond film. And for the longest time, this was number two on my, uh, on my all-time list. Uh, mm. And I thought, you know, okay, the third Sean Connery film is my favorite Sean Connery film. The third Roger Moore is my favorite Roger Moore. Uh, well, as we go as we go further, I will uh, see where it falls on the list later. If anything tops it off, but for for at least at this point in time, this was number two on my all-time James Bond list, and I remember seeing it on whatever pay service we had. I think we were still on the Wometco Home Theater at that time, uh, so I got to watch it multiple times. And the thing I I don't know why, but the thing that stands out in my mind was a commercial that they would show for the movie. And in the commercial, they would they were playing the theme song, the Carly Simon theme song. And 
during it, you know, they were showing all clips from the movie, and the one clip that really stood out to me in that, and I don't remember if it was just the way it was synced with the music, or if it was just, you know, seemed cool at the time, but is it's the scene on the train when he uses the uh, the light to electrify <laughs> uh, Jaws' teeth. <laughs> Nice. It was the one thing that was, really, really stood out. But I must have seen this movie on, again, whatever home video service we had at that time, easily, I think, a dozen times over the course of like two months. So this one got quite a few viewings from me. Nice. What's your first experience with this one, guys? Uh, this is another TBS one for me. Uh, I think yeah. I saw it on TV on like ABC. That was me, ABC. The movie of the week or the Sunday night movie, whatever it was. So I, I really kind of felt like uh, Roger Moore really hit his stride here. Because I kind of felt that the man with the golden gun was a little bit of a bump in the road. I thought he didn't, you know, he did live and let die, he hit the ground running. Then we got the man with the golden gun, which I felt was almost a step backwards. And then he took a big step forward in this one, as far as I was concerned. He really kind of just took over the character. Uh, he's got, you know, the quippy lines, but he's also very, he, he, he seems very tough in it in his own way. Yeah. Uh, yep. In particular, the scene when he uh, drops the guy off the pyramid. When he drops the guy, uh, when he's trying to find oh, out where Feckish is. Yeah. Pyramid! Yeah. Now that was Jaws Handler that he dropped at that point. I don't remember he, him having a specific name, and it was a little disappointing that he wasn't a better henchman. Eh. A top-notch henchman in this one, and we'll talk about Jaws some more as we go on. Uh, but it almost would have been nice to have two. You know, it, it almost seemed like Mr. Wind and Mr. Kid kind of thing. You could have two guys, uh, but in you know he, he just he disposed of him very easily. <laughs> Well, it just and allowed more space for Richard Keel to to breathe as Jaws. I mean, didn't have to split the screen with the handler. So this this one came out in 1977. It actually premiered in London on July 7th, 77, and in the United States on July 13th. It's slightly over two hours, uh, 125 minutes total. And our guest cast in this includes Barbara Bach, Curd Jennings, who was mis mis uh, misstated as Kurt Jennings in it, Jurgens, excuse me, I said Jennings, and Richard Keel as Jaws. <laughs> uh, so I guess we you know we start with the opening sequence, which I know had audiences standing up and cheering, in particular in London. I stood up and cheer on my couch. Yeah, I think they cheered everywhere. That well, it, it was it was a, a big thing, you know. We we have the ski, the skiing sequence, which is just you know a great action sequence. Although I still question how somebody could be skiing at top speed and literally turn around and then turn back again. If you're a secret agent, they, they teach you that. I don't know if you have to release your feet from the skis somehow to do that. And then, you know, not miss a step and actually step right back into them somehow. I don't know Maybe. how you do that. But Bond did that. And he, the one person he managed to shoot was, was Barbara Bach's lover, which is just interesting. But, uh, you know, it, it ends with the, the spectacular scene where he, he skis off the edge of the mountain and he's free falling and his parachute opens up and it's the Union Jack. And yeah, yeah. My, and and, it, and that's all that to kind of a disco James Bond theme as it's building up and then builds into the da 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 and then into the Carly Simon singing Nobody Does It Better. Uh, my understanding is when they premiered it in London, the audience, which included Prince Charles, gave it a standing Ooh. ovation at that point. All right. It's crazy. It's crazy to think how that was really done, you know, as opposed yeah. to CGI or some kind of special effect. Nope. Just jump off this mountain and... Uh... Hopefully you get the shoot open while we can still get it on camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, missed it. You're going to have to do it again. <sighs> yeah, that's uh, such a great pre-title pre sequence. It's one, of, it's one of the most memorable ones, in my opinion. 
Now, one of the things that stands out about this movie as I'm watching it with a critical eye is the similarity to You Only Live Twice. Oh, oh yes. yes. Yeah. Starting with the fact that it had the same director, Louis uh, no. Gilbert. But, you know, you have, in, in You Only Live Twice, you have the giant spacecraft that's swallowing other spacecrafts. In this, you have the giant ocean liner that's swallowing other uh, submarines. Uh, you know, you have the, the final battle scene with, with the, the, all the troops in both movies. It just struck me as very, very similar. Trying and to... Shane Grimmer's in it, too. Mm-hmm. Which I had a note about that as well. So, uh, It has, from what I understand, and not that I've ever read it, but it has, the only thing it has in, com- in uh, common with the book is the name. Sounds about right for most and of the 70s ones. And that it has to do with James Bond. Yeah. I think beyond and, that, it has no, uh, no, real, no, no real connection. Jaws is in it, but he has a different name. His name uh, is Hara in the book. Now, you read it, Dave? No, I watched the uh, extra features on the DVD. Oh, that, yeah, and you know what movie had just come out pretty close to that? Jaws? Uh, Jaws? Yeah. Hey, you know, there's something to be said for marketing at the right time. Now, in the opening sequence, let me ask you, my, you guys, uh, see if you have any answer for me here. Why are the Soviets looking to ambush Bond? Because um, Cold spy War, spy stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. They wanted to get the Chekhov plan in. Yeah, yeah. And there had to be a reason. I don't know why, but, you know, he, he left, he, you know, he was with some woman, and then he got the call and he leaves. That's what, you England, know, like, but, but James, I need you. So does England. Uh, but as soon as he leaves, she calls up to say he's, you know, that he's on his way. And all I could think of was the, uh, the cab driver from Live and Let Die. He's headed on in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. See, this is why if now see if Bond had been around just like another decade later on, he would have heard Belleville DeVoe's song Poison and he would have known never trust a big butt and a smile. So, you know, it's just he's just a victim of the time there, you know. So if they hadn't stolen that sub, would he have been killed? (sighs) Ooh, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I think I I think it's very possible. But of course, you know, he's not going to be. Barbara Bach, they, you know, they also in in the initial scene, they do the little uh, miss miss. guiding you to make you think that uh, the guy who's ambushing Bond is Agent Triple X, but then, you know, Paul Robach takes the the call. Agent Triple X. That's so good. I don't care. I love it. Now, my understanding is she was cast in the role four days before they started filming. Wow. Well, hey. And in my opinion, one of the best Bond girls. Overall, yeah. It looks wise, not for me personally, but character wise, yes. Well, we, we've we've had a couple of movies where there has been a kind of a female counterpart to Bond, and this is the first one that truly seems competent. Yes, she's although, actually a fully entrenched spy. <laughs> although there's the scene when they when they're kind of lurking around the pyramids and they back into each other, and and they you know. They shock each other, so they turn around like in, in a battle pose, and she's yeah. got her hands up in the karate chop fashion. And I think, who are you scaring? <laughs> I, I, well, I don't know. And he just shoots her. <laughs> he could have. I thought that sequence, actually, at the pyramids was exceptionally well shot. Yeah. Uh, you, you, know, they, you know, that sequence made me want to go to the pyramids. And when I was in the service, we went to Egypt, but we we couldn't leave the ship. We we had to moor offshore, and they would come to us with stuff. So I didn't get to take a tour. I was very upset that I didn't. So get you've to been leave. to Egypt, but you've you've seen none of it. I've seen Egypt from the ship. Well, still counts. Yeah. Sort of. 
So I, I felt like this of the you know of the Bond films we've covered so far, this one, with the exception of maybe Doctor No, was probably the easiest one to kind of follow the story as they went from location to location. Usually, you know, like if if you blink for a second, they give you some half-assed explanation mm-hmm. as to why he's off to some other country. And you're thinking, what? Why is he there? I don't, I don't remember. You know, I don't get this. And you just kind of have to roll with it. Yeah. Mm. But in this one, I kind of felt like the story actually had a logical progression to it. Although the uh, the initial trip to Egypt and all of that for the microfilm is kind of a, you know, kind of a, a, a wild goose chase because the microfilm doesn't actually have the full plans on it. Right. But it does lead them to Stromberg. Yeah, it's. I mean, the, these movies don't all need to be, uh, you know, in depth, and not many of them really are. But yeah, I mean, maybe or maybe it's just part of it that they realized the audience was kind of getting younger for them too, you know. So it's you kind of try to hit those four quadrants, you know, old, young man, and woman. So let's just make it a, a nice, easy, breezy uh, romp for everybody to just, you know, go in and get their popcorn and enjoy. You know, one one of the things I thought is, uh, you know, there's a scene he goes, they go to see visit, you know, they they get the microfilm, they figure out that it has to do with Stromberg's factory, and they go to visit, and he pretends to be a marine biologist, and she pretends to be his assistant. And all I can think of is at the, you know, at the end of it, every time he's done this in this film series, every time he's posed as somebody who's not James Bond, it ends with the other person saying, "Kill him." <laughs> so what's the point? <laughs> That, that that whole meeting was a little fuzzy for me. Like exactly what was the point? Yeah, he 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 goes over. They have to travel to the uh, Legion of Doom, and they go get yeah. they get there, and he spends about two minutes with them, and he's like, and that's all the time I have for you, so you'll have to leave now. It's like, wow, <laughs> that was an incredible waste of time. I just swung by to say hello. <laughs> Let me test you. Oh, yeah. What kind of fish is that? Um, oh, it's a it's a lionfish. Bond knows. He knows. He knows everything. He knows his fish. He knows everything. The thing that I found odd, entertaining, whatever you want to call it, is they're under a time sensitive circumstances. Hey, let's take the train. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how long, how long was Jaws sitting there in a closet waiting for his moment to pounce? He dozed off. It's okay. <laughs> and then it turns out they changed the room. <laughs> he jumps out on some elderly couple. Oh, man. I would pay folding money to see that. <laughs> and it's Estelle Getty and B. Arthur. Ooh. Ooh, well, they would have been relatively young then. Relatively. Um, well, that is, what, 45 years ago or almost 45 years ago? 43 years like ago. 30s. <laughs> Not quite, but 40s. Still, still, I'm 40 now, so it's still young. Damn it. Yeah, you would, you, you, you would have been happy. 40 yeah. today is not like it was in the 70s. No, it's not. You ever not. watch some of these programs from the 70s? Oh, yes, we have a male here, age 40. He looks like he's 112. Yeah, I was going to <laughs> Archie Bunker. It was a big deal on one episode when he turned 50. Did he look 50 to you? I thought he was about 70 when I was a kid. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, yeah, my uh, wife and I were watching and we're like, oh my God, he's 50? God, you're old now. Well, I always come back to, I mean, I know we're going far afield here. I always come back to the fact that uh, when they were filming Cocoon, Wilfred Brimley was 49. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he looked older than half the cast. Yeah. Especially Steve Gutenberg. So now, Dave, I want to set you free to, to, to discuss as much as you can the Lotus of Spirit. Ooh. It's you are a car, car guy. Huh? Oh, I'm the car guy. I do know that they had several versions of that car. The one they drove around. They had a second one that they actually made it so it could move underwater. It did not have, uh, you know, an oxygen system like a submarine, but it was equipped with equipment to propel it underwater 
and they had two guys in there with scuba equipment actually driving it around underneath. Awesome. And as a side note, I read an article somewhat recently where a prince or something in Saudi Arabia spent millions of dollars recently and had that car built that it could turn into a submarine. They use they use it over by Chris on the duck tour. Yeah, <laughs> duck tours. God. Oh, and there was the a duck tour list, and we were in Boston. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's because you live you there. You it. don't care. No, I don't. <laughs> that would that would be like if you came here and did like that double decker bus tour. I'd be going eh. <laughs> I wouldn't even do a double decker bus tour if I was in London. Take the circle line. I'd be I'd be stalking Andy Leyland. Creepy. Okay. <laughs> anyway, just getting back to the movie. Uh, yes. So they, they, they capture the other submarine. And one of the things I've always enjoyed about this, and here we get here we get to Dr. Bill, uh, was, you know, Bond is there in uniform, part of the, the Royal Navy. And uh, how'd you, how, how did you take all of that? I was watching, like, when he's walking down the... Um, Walking down the pier, people are passing him. He's saluting. I'm like, oh, okay, good. They're 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 like they could have just as easily not done the salute, but they probably told uh, Roger Moore, hey, if anybody passes you, you know, give them a salute back. And you know, these guys are extras or whatever. Probably just you know, walk past him, salute him like he's a you know like he's an officer. Blah blah blah. I did notice some things on because um, I was watching especially for things that might have been incorrect. Uh, the control room, that looked fairly real, because believe it or not, I have actually been on a on a nuclear sub. Um, <laughs> I had a friend who was stationed on one, and I went on there and got to see a lot of things. Uh, the chairs in the galley, that's, uh, that's a load of hooey. You do, <laughs> you do not have chairs that are not bolted to the floor. They are either... They can either be bolted and removed, or they are made as a part of the table. That's the way it was on my ship, because you don't want chairs flying around. No, all over the place. Um, see, um, did you guys any have any specific questions for me as to the naval stuff? Well, I'm, I'm curious, and I don't know since this is the British Navy. I don't know if you're, uh, you know, if you'd know this, but I'm curious as to where a commander would fall in the chain of command. Oh, uh, well, if it was the United States, I think that would be a O. Let me see. I think that was an O5 off the top of my head. If I had to. I put so. Okay, that I has no meaning comp- to me, though. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I can tell you because I just Googled it. <clears throat> uh, Royal Navy. <laughs> Rear Admiral, Commodore, Captain, Commander. So Commander's so pretty just high. Below up. The captain. It's yeah, yes. it's the same place that it is in ours. And then after that would be Lieutenant but below that would be Lieutenant Commander, Lieutenant Lieutenant would Junior you, Grade and Would and, you and actually ship. have a commander on an active ship? Or is that some you know, like somebody who would kinda go back and forth to different ships? You know, would he actually would the, just to try and I'm not sure on the submarine. Would the commander actually be a regular person on that ship? Well, like on my ship, our XO, which is the second in command, was a commander, and our captain was a captain. But remember, the size of the ship, I think I mentioned this to you in in passing before, you don't have to be a captain. You don't have to have the the rank of captain to be a captain of a ship. Well, whoever is in charge of the ship is the captain. Correct, and a smaller ship may have a lieutenant commander or a lieutenant is the captain of the ship. So, but like in the the ship that I was on, which was a cruiser, the captain was a captain, and the XO, who was second in command, was a commander. So, but so you did have a commander on it regularly. Yes. Yes. Okay, so that is. And then, and then, like a department head was a lieutenant commander below him. And then, like a division head below that was a usually a lieutenant. See, because the, the way it struck me in this, it almost felt like Bond was more just like a visiting dignitary. 
Oh yeah, he doesn't have any real. Uh, he. He had no I mean, role I guess in, it, the ship. in a pinch, right? He's just he's he's catching a ride, basically. I mean, you know, he's <laughs> but he does have a rank in the service of commander. Now, okay, uh, so now in that situation, you you have a, you have a ship with your regular crew. Everybody's got mm-hmm. their established positions, mm-hmm. and a commander comes aboard to hitch a ride. Now, the only person who's senior to him in rank is the captain. Would that commander take an active role commander, and start ordering people around, or would they just kind of be like, you know, hanging within out? reason? I mean, like if you know he, you know, he needed something moved, or there was, he can't just assume command of the ship. No, I mean, especially if he's just there, um, like in a, just hitching a ride, or he now he could be part of a. Sometimes they have uh, like. We had carrier groups. Um, there was like com car group group and all this stuff to where you may have a representative of the carrier group, which is like a, a, a large set, a large group of ships, which is usually controlled by a rear admiral or an admiral. And he's on his flagship, but he may have uh, minions just to make it easy. He may send a commander over to a ship who could be acting on his behalf for the carrier group, you know, to convey some orders to the captain from the admiral, things let like me, that. Let me, let, me, let me give you a stupid hypoth- hypothetical, and I, I'm acknowledging that it's stupid before I even ask it. But uh, the commander's on the ship, and he's hitching a ride. Mm-hmm. The only person who's above him in rank is the captain. Mm-hmm. Something happens, and the captain is incapacitated. Is it... Is it logical that the commander would then assume the role of captain at that point, or would he step aside and let the normal second in command, who's below him in rank, take over as captain? I think that would depend on the individual. I mean, logically, you would want the person who's more familiar with the ship. Like he, could, like you could be a you could be a commander, but you've been you've done your whole life in the um, your whole career. In the supply corps. Now, I'm not knocking the supply corps, or you could be, you could have done it in the medical corps mm-hmm. in the service. That just because you're a higher rank doesn't mean you're automatically should be suited to take over command of a vessel. So, mm-hmm. in my opinion, it would be the executive officer, and they would maintain the chain of command. Also, bonds the, the U.S. Navy. Well, yeah, but even in the in even in the British Navy. I think you're. I think you're thinking of. Um, that well, I'm thinking of the stupid. I'm thinking when, of the stupid uh, people in Star Trek. When Decker takes command shows. of the Enterprise. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly the stupidity I'm thinking of. But I'm but trying see, to think. He was already. Is, if you if you had a, an arrogant person of high rank, could they actually do something like that? But well, well but, I mean, but but Bonds on a United States submarine. He's not well, on a British submarine. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. He would hold no rank. Yeah. He wouldn't be able to assume command there. Yeah. No. no. That wouldn't happen. No. 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 Actually, if if you know, since it's Bond, he probably would. Well, yeah. They'd, and they'd all listen. <laughs> but he here's a here's a question now. When they're on the tanker, and they they're taking charge of the tanker, they're fighting it out there. The British captain's killed. If Bond is the next highest, would he have authority over those sailors, since they're not even on a submarine anymore? I would think he would. Uh, he he would be ranking, but he's Bond. He's got other things to do. So yeah, no, I'm, gonna... I'm thinking, I'm, I'm <laughs> looking at it from the perspective of if he wanted to, if he had yes, reason if he to wanted do it, to he, he, he would have the rank, rank yeah, like to be situation. able to order them. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you don't have time in that. And that's his, you know, well, when did you get your commission? Well, I got my commission. Blam, I'm dead. Oh. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, the, the final, the final scene with Stromberg. Oh, yeah. It struck me, it's, it's a little weird, because, I mean, obviously Stromberg was never presented to be a physical threat to Bond. That was, that was never even a consideration. Uh, but it, I thought I thought it was particularly violent and yet as ungraphic as possible. 
uh, <laughs> you know, Bond shoots him in the nether regions through his mm-hmm. uh, the tube through his tube, uh, which which I think is probably breaking some laws of physics and things, but that's besides the point. And it's uh, a euphemism. <laughs> but but. You know, there's there's no blood. You don't see anything. You just see him cringe. Then Bond shoots him three more times, and you still don't ever see a bullet wound anywhere. That's because he was sitting down. Yeah. No, he's he's flailing back and forth as Bond is shooting him in the chest and whatever, and you still don't see it. Uh, which is fine. It was it was a a choice that I think made sense because you know you're making this movie that's going to, you know, you you. Seeking to have an all audience move, all age movie, with the exception of very young children, basically mm-hmm. from like seven years old and up, you want them to be able to watch this. So you can't have an especially bloody scene. Now, with that in mind, the way Jaws kills some of the people he's with, it's especially chilling because he's doing it almost like a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. It wouldn't have killed those people instantly. I if mean, he, you if he they bit them on the juggle sh- vein, it would go pretty quick. Well, okay, but they, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was just. It almost made it seem like he, they, they more died of fright than they did of of the bite. Like oh. if you were a little kid, you could you could wish that away. You could think that in your head because a little kid's not going to think, oh my god, there would be blood everywhere because he ripped their throat out. Which well, is, in were, sense, what he's doing. Yeah, but they they were smart enough to just have it to leave a lot of it to your imagination. Yeah, yeah. they they didn't they didn't feel the need to show the blood, and I think that was a smart choice. Well, I mean, to be fair, I mean, none of the movies really in the last fifty something years they never get super graphic. You know, but it's... but this was one of the more violent graphic ways of having the assassin kill people. And True. They still managed to do that without being in your face with the, uh, you know, with with the actual gore. So I'm I'm, I'm I'm giving I'm saying this as a compliment to the movie. I'm not All criticizing. Right. I, yeah, I got you. Uh, I think you know we should probably take a minute or two to just talk about Jaws because outside of our job, now, <laughs> Goldfinger was my favorite. This was my second favorite. Our job was my favorite henchman. Jaws is my second favorite henchman. Uh, <laughs> Without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, he, he has the same feeling of invulnerability that Bond cannot match up against him physically. Yeah. So, you, so you know, every time he walks on the screen, you, you, you have a certain certain feeling of dread and... I think in the next movie we're going to see how they could kind of screw that up a little bit. But <laughs> but in this movie, I just think he was played incredibly well. I think Richard Keel did a great job of being frightening Richard in the role. Richard Keel. Is it, is it, that's what I said, right? Richard Keel. Yeah, I said Richard yes. Keel did a great job of being Richard Keel. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I thought maybe I said the wrong name there for a second. Uh the scene, the, right at the beginning, when when Stromberg is talking to him and and he talks about you know anybody sees the microfilm kill him and he just bursts into this smile and you see the the metal teeth. It just you know there was he he just seems incredibly menacing. Yeah. Now I I, I would be interested in seeing if since what you say, Dave, that he there was a similar character called Horror in the book. That's what they said that there's a character named Horror who has metal teeth. And I, be, I believe he kills people with his teeth. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, was, was there, were they so. somehow like, you know, charged with energy or something? Because he, he's like able to bite through things that, you know, his a normal person's jaw shouldn't handle. It's not just the metal teeth. He's obviously got more than that. But then he's got some kind of super strength, too, because he rips apart the van that they're driving in with his bare hands. And mm. she drives him into a wall and he gets up and walks away. He's like the energizer bunny. Pretty yeah. much. So, I remember as a kid, he scared the living daylights out of me when I a, saw That's this. a different movie. Yes, it is. <laughs> but, um, 
but it, yeah, I mean, I definitely think he could be frightening to a young kid, but but again, not over the top. He's not so far gone that, you know, it's not the kind of movie where somebody takes their child to see it and then afterwards regrets it because this kid's never going to sleep again, or at least I don't think. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it was that over the top as far as the violence went uh, or the, the the scariness of that character. I think I think he, again, much like our job, I think he was kind of the perfect henchman. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the the way he manages to get rid of him with the giant magnet is also very cool. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. And he beat the shark at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Commentary. I don't know what kind of commentary it is, but it's commenting on something. <laughs> Jaws beach Jaws. Oh, my God. Now, an int- it, well, I mean, we had the, the-, the actual... Uh, title song by Carly Simon, which to this day is one of my favorite James Bond songs. Why? Oh, I think it's great. It's horrible. What? Absolutely horrible. It's got to be a generational thing, because I like it, too. You you old fats would. Carly Simon is garbage. I'm sorry. Uh, She was always over at Martha's Vineyard. You should love her. No. Don't don't know. Her and the, the, the... They can both take a long walk. James short, Taylor? Yeah. yeah, that guy. Who? James Taylor. Oh. I thought you said Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, they oh. said James, she was married to James Taylor for quite a while. That's when they sang and the song Mockingbird together. Two deserve anyway, each other. Anyway, I, I, I have no idea what, what she was like personally, but I really like that song. And she's got a few songs I like a lot. So. Let the river run. That one's a little too insane. Is that the one from work? What's the one from working? Yes. That's from working. Working girl. girl. Yeah, oh, yeah that one kind of gets on my nerves because it's like because it just goes okay, on all right, and on. Tone long. it down. Oh my yeah. god. I agree. Yeah. Um, see, I, see, the first time I watched Working Girl, I was thinking of something completely different. I was very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but but back to this one. Uh, part of the reason I enjoyed that song so much was. Because of what I talked about earlier, when they would have the commercial where they played the song and they would just show clips from the movie, so it, it definitely hit a, hit a spot with me there. But I thought they made a very interesting choice to have Marvin Hamlish score the movie. Yeah, I was surprised when I saw that too. I was like, really? Oh. And he made some bold choices. Now I don't think he did a bad job, but he definitely played into the music style of the day. With almost like a disco theme to the music, yeah. but he also has you know the music that's playing during the pyramid sequence, which was pretty good, uh, you know, and and he did use the overall just James Bond theme effectively throughout. Yeah, yeah, the music is good. I, and I know it's disco Bond, but I I still love it. I love well, if it. If I remember correctly, I think we get an even more disco James Bond theme in uh, For Your Eyes Only, and so yes. we'll see in we'll see in mm-hmm. two movies when we get there. Uh, but yeah, this this one definitely tried to go with the, you know, the disco of the era. But at the time, it was very fitting, so I thought it was good for that. Uh, the movie was was a major hit. Uh, what were the numbers on it? It cost them thirteen point five million to make it, and the box office, which I, I assume is worldwide, is one one hundred eighty five point four million. So it's that's yeah, a. It's about it's a good 15, ROI. Time, fifteen times the uh, the budget, something like that. Yeah. So that's that's a huge hit, uh, which I guess is why they decided to bring Jaws back for the next movie, and why they decided <laughs> not to go with Fioros only as the next movie. <laughs> they struck a chord with somebody. Wow, Richard Richard Keel was on uh, the Match Game. I did not know that. Who wasn't? He was also in uh, Cannonball Run 2. Useless trivia. You don't get quality films like that too often. No. No. Anyway, no, don't. <laughs> anything more on this one that you guys want to discuss before we rank it? Uh, it's it's. We didn't. On any oh. given day, it's in my top five. It's definitely in my top ten. This one is, and I know there's a lot of top, top ten stuff in it, movies or top ten James Bond. Bond. Movies. Top ten Bond. For sure. Well, there's no it's, question. It's in my top ten. That's not even a a, a question. At all it's and it, it's in fact it's in my top five. 
and as I said, at the time it was number two. I'm not sure how low it, how much it's dropped, but it might be number three still. It's a, uh, it's so good. I love it. So Stromberg had some affliction that gave him webbed hands, which is why he wanted to live, create, just plunge yeah. the world into which, the which ocean. I mean, his 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 argument made no sense whatsoever. You know, it, it's it's. I understand that that there's more water on the world than than ground, but we are a land based people. <laughs> so well, if you're going to put the people into the water, you have to do so in a, an enclosed <laughs> type facility that would not be using the water anyway. Mm. Something about his whole plot seems like it's going to resonate in the next film as well. A similar concept. We're going oh, to yeah, wipe the same. Yeah, I'm going to wipe everything out. But, you know, what is it? Drax took a one right. step further. He actually had his own people picked out and ready. Yeah. Well, that, see, that's what I was going to point out. Looking at all the people around him, if they were going to recreate civilization underwater... I don't think they had enough women. No, I was that, I was thinking that to him like, wow, everybody in the crew is a bunch of dudes. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I want to sign up for this. Well, you know. Uh, um, okay, fish man, how's that going to work for you? <laughs> <laughs> but Carefully. we're not going to talk about the the lovely Carolyn Monroe. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Who was who was dubbed by? I knew that wasn't her voice. I'm like, no, no, no. I've heard her speak before. I saw Battle Beyond the Stars. I know it wasn't her. <laughs> what? I don't, she a Battle she Beyond the Stars? Uh, she was in uh, one of the Sinbad movies. Uh, at the Earth's Core. I don't think she was in... She was in, in Captain Kronos. She's in one of those Corman sci-fi movies. The one with Hasselhoff in it, I think. Oh, uh, Star Crash. Star Crash. Boom. Sorry, that's it. I yeah. got I got my low-budget movies mixed up. And then she was in the abominable Dr. Fibes. Mm. Doc, Dr. Fibes' wife. Oh, she's just... she's. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. But her voice was dubbed by Barbara Jefford. Okay. And eh. I'm just looking at her. I don't really see... I'll be the male chauvinist pig right now. She didn't need to say anything. <laughs> She provided the voice of Titania Romanova in uh, from Russia with Love as well. Ah. She dubbed Molly Peters in Thunderball. She's like like a consistent James Bond th- dub dubber. Take the work where you can get it. Why did they dub her though? She, she sounded all right in the interviews. I have no who idea. Who knows who makes these decisions? You n- you never know. I guess I yeah. guess the sound didn't quite sound right to them. I'm sure I'm sure they had some sort of logic for it, but you know, and and, and they had their standby uh, regular. <laughs> Bring in Barbara. <laughs> we need to. We need, we need a dubbing. Oh, I'm on her official website now. Oh, All right. And this so Bill can get back to whatever he was doing. <laughs> yes. So, all right. Who wants to go first on this one? Uh, I will. Um. This movie has a character named Jaws, and guess what? It is Jaws. Ooh, that was I see what you did there. <laughs> Very clever. Sometimes. Dave, what do you think? I enjoyed this movie. I feel Roger Moore really came into his own with it. It's probably his... I think it's his best. Um... The plot is a bit recycled from uh, You Only Live Twice. Granted, it's space and the sea, but it's it's a little recycled. Yeah. And for those reasons, I give it an extremely high Jaws 2 to Jaws. Bill? All right. Uh, Chris stole my, uh, um, you know, is it Jaws? Well, it's got a Jaws in it. Great minds. Um, I mean, I hadn't seen this in a long time, so I had a I had a blast watching this again. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's like right right on the edge there between a between a Jaws two and a Jaws. You know, kind of. 
I think because I enjoyed it so much, I would have to push it just just into the Jaws field. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty much in total agreement with you, Bill. I think uh, this this has been so high on my list for so long, and I really don't have any flaws to speak of. Yes, the plot is somewhat recycled from You Only Live Twice, uh, but I think I, I almost feel like they took You Only Live Twice and made it better. So I don't mind yeah. that they recycled the plot yeah. when I think they improved it. And and I, I thought You Only Live Twice was a really good movie, too. Uh, so I'm going to put this one in, uh, as a Jaws. I think it's probably on the lower end of the Jaws spectrum, but a Jaws just the same. Oh, yeah. So if we followed at the end of this movie, next time out we'd be doing For, for Your Eyes Only. No. Well, if you if you were going with the end of the movie, yes. Because that's what was that threw me off. I'm like, wait, I don't remember that coming next, and it doesn't. But next time out, we get Moonraker, and I think, I really think it's a byproduct of two things, and we'll talk about it more when we cover it. But it's you know, they wanted to go with the space plot because of Star Wars, and they wanted to bring Jaws back because he was so popular in this movie. I think it's those what? two things made them say, let's put Furoys only on the back burner for a little while. Yeah, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you? Right so we can wise, wise decision. We're going to put For Your Eyes Only on the back burner. And next time out, we're going to cover Moonraker. So yeah. thank you, everybody. Thank you guys for all coming on. Yeah. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Unexpected pleasure. Welcome to the Majava Club. Buy you a drink? Major Amasavan? Or may I call you Triple X? So you know who I am? You made quite an impression. I'm sorry about Ivan and Boris. They exceeded their orders. Good stuff is hard to find these days. Yes, sir. The lady will have a Bacardi on the rocks. For the gentleman. Vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. Touche. Commander James Bond, recruited to the British Secret Service from the Royal Navy, licensed to kill, and has done so on numerous occasions. Many lady friends, but married only once. Wife killed All right, you've made your point. You're sensitive, Mr. Bond. About certain things, yes. Now, if you'll excuse me... Tragically, I have a previous engagement. Happily enough, so do I. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. Well, let's say au revoir. I have the oddest feeling we'll be meeting again sometime.